recorded live in Manhattan's East Village. From St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. I'm Simone. And I know a lot of you, and some of you I've not seen here at The Project before, which is always a real pleasure. Um, welcome to The Poetry Project. Um, I am what is called the program director of the Poetry Project, which is relevant tonight for a number of reasons. Um, this is like a slightly complex logistical program, so I just wanna explain what's gonna happen um, before we go forward. Um, we have four folks here who are gonna sit down at the front of the room in a minute, and those people are, um, I'm looking at the door because one of them is Cheryl Clark, who's not yet here, so at some point she will come in, hopefully. Um, also, Christopher Stackhouse, Mahogany Brown, and Ariel Goldberger with us here tonight. Um, contributions in your packet are also from Tisa Bryant, Jen Hoffer, Crystal Longrell, and Rachel Levitsky. So, um, this is a fairly, this is a lot of folks' voices, and in order to accommodate all of them, what we're going to try to do is um, begin by asking a few people who are in the room who can either introduce themselves or not as they see fit to read the contributions from Tisa, Jen, Crystal, and Rachel. And we're kind of gonna just do that straight through. And you're gonna have an opportunity to listen to those. We'll take a very brief pause of maybe two minutes between each piece. So that if you want to, you could write something down or you know, make a note or um, stand up because like the spirit has moved you to stand up as if this were a meeting house and just say what you need to say. Um, so once we finish that, we'll actually begin with something like a panel discussion and the people who are in the room will um, take their places and we'll do that. You guys can, if you want to sit up there while we listen, that's fine. Or if not, you can wait until the end. It's really up to you. Okay? Is there a hashtag? There's no hashtag. Make one up right now. Hashtag White Room Poetry Project. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Hashtag Brown Room Poetry Project. <laughs> Give me a hashtag. Uh, hashtag um, White Room Brown Voice. Excellent. That's it. Hashtag New Room. Hashtag New Room. New Room. Either. I think, I think we're Democrats in here. So, <laughs> um, hashtag, say again. White Room Brown Voice. White Room Brown Voice. Um, or new room. Okay, so let's begin. We're gonna go in alphabetical order with these contributions. So again, Tisa Bryant, Jen Hoffer, Crystal Longell, Rachel Levitsky, and we're just gonna read straight through, okay? Um, beginning with Tisa. Hi, I'm Adjua Greaves. Pleasure to be in this room talking about this thing. Where you put your body, Tisa Bryant. In reflecting on the generous and generative responses to Juliana Spar and Stephanie Young's program era and the mainly white room and to the piece itself, one thing springs immediately to mind, discomfort. Then, I have several questions. 
Renee Gladman posited the ambivalent guest as an analog to the, P the POC poet writer standing at the threshold of a doorway to a room of people ready to welcome them into the fold, but who do not share or understand their context. In order to cross the threshold and enjoy whatever intellectual communion on offer, the POC poet writer has to wrangle with discomfort, alienation, and the bewildering ambiance of elitism, exoticism, exceptionalism, among other complexities that at once flatter one's ego and siphon from one's spirit in exchange for education, publication, employment. Is there an analog to being the ambivalent guest for the white poet writer? When does, when must, the white poet writer contend with this discomfort? If being the ambivalent guest is always a choice, the white poet writer can decline, an experience that can always be avoided. Is it because nothing in that poet writer's life depends on enduring and negotiating perpetual states of discomfort, say, being the only white person in an all POC cultural space? The Bay Area poetry scene was bewilderingly segregated, aesthetically, lingually, and racially. The majority of my of color friends were artists, scholars, and writers for whom the AIDS, the HIV AIDS service organization Proyecto Contra Sida Por Vida was a cultural, critical, social, and activist hub in the Mission neighborhood of San Francisco. The division, those folks and the experimental poetry, excuse me, uh, the division between those folks and the experimental poetry scenes of mission-based new college and small press traffic was stark and disturbing despite all the queerness and interracial friendships, relationships, etc. These worlds would come together if I gave a small reading at small press traffic or at a similar avant-garde space as my POC friends would be in the house. The inverse was seldom true when I gave readings at POC spaces. It required my white poet writer friends to be uncomfortable in a new space, to not know a great deal about the idiom, aesthetics, signification uh, system and relation of the space, and to be vulnerable in the ecology that sustains them without their direct recognition of the fact, to perhaps also be ignored, obliquely mocked, made to explain how they'd come to be there, or viewed with hostility. Being in mostly black and brown space required sacrifice, humility, and reciprocity from my white poet writer friends for whom my isolation and alienation was the price of the ticket to their friendship. The mostly white room is symptomatic of the one-sided relationship between mostly white poet writers and everyone else. The mostly white room is the educational system, the prison industrial context, com <laughs> the prison industrial complex, systemic racism and violence, and is inherently anti-black. 
Can the mostly white room of poet writing spaces change color without a deep and sustained questioning and changing its values? How does one discern a POC separatist space from a POC space? How do white poet writers articulate their need, desire, affinity for and or with POC poet writers in the spaces for expression and socio and the for and the then the spaces for expression? Oh, that's so sad. Hang on one second. How do white poet writers articulate their need, desire, affinity for and or with? POC poet writers and the spaces for expression and sociality the latter creates. Where do you put your body? and I'm going to be reading uh, Cataloging a Now Among Persons Observation, Inquiry, Response, Action by Jen Hoffer. An observational inquiry. Who speaks? An observational inquiry. Who listens? A subtextual or harmonic inquiry. Who fears and what do they fear? An actionable inquiry. What does fearlessness look like when simultaneous to fear? An actionable inquiry. Who speaks? An actionable inquiry. Who listens? An inquiry requiring no response. What room are we in? An inquiry require, requiring response. Who is we? An inquiry requ requiring no response. What is meant by the term room? An inquiry re requiring response and potentially action. What room are we in? An observational inquiry. Where does a person have privilege? Which person? Exactly. An observational inquiry. Insofar as a person has privilege, how does the person use it? An instigatory inquiry. Insofar as a person has privilege, how might a person use that privilege to dismantle or renegotiate or undermine or explode or what other words might do more work more effectively here? the systems and structures that afford privilege. A further prod, but really, truly, seriously, what does it look like and feel like to do that? An admission. Of course, I realize these are long-standing and repeating morphing questions, which are the tools that will dismantle the master's house and what is built or unbuilt in its stead. An observational inquiry for use in future actions. Catalog instances of a self or others undermining systems that afford them privilege. Notice who does that. Notice who doesn't. Notice where structures resist undermine. Notice where structures disintegrate in an alternative air. Repeat. Expand. I am imagining, <clears throat> I am imagining these are questions many at the Poetry Project 
on the evening of January 6, 2016 are already thinking through and around. I feel myself saying the same things over and over and over again to myself, in my writing, to others. Ask the questions, do the work, foreground the persons and writers and bodies that are most important and relevant to your current moment, and be aware of who that is and what constitutes that moment. Participate in making the more and just and equitable world everybody, every person fiercely needs to inhabit. I'm hoping to be in further and farther conversation around these and other questions with others who share the same goal Simone gorgeously articulates, to work out the terms of the conversation that we want to see happen. I read that in part as to work out the terms of the world we want to experience, a world where there's room for everyone who is currently in danger of being policed to death, incarcerated to death, ignored to death. I don't believe that conversation will consist exclusively of poetry, and I do believe poetry needs to be part of it. I don't know that agreement will be reached about the terms or the conversation. I suspect something other than statement is called for at this time. I suspect that something is some shifting, is some shifting combination of observation, inquiry, response, action, and interaction. Crystal Longwell. In the summer of 2008, I worked for a visiting fiction professor as a short-term nanny and later as a house and dog sitter. His home had an in-ground pool, and one afternoon, a bunch of my fellow students came with me to take advantage of this luxury. On arrival, I found that the dogs had shit all over the master bathroom and closet. All but one of my friends I'd just driven to this house went ahead and jumped in the pool. One, Carrie Grinstead helped me clean up the shit. It was caked into the strap of the professor's laptop bag. We were both gagging. This is my million dollar image for what my MFA was like. If you're lucky, one person helps you wipe up the shit. I attended that program because I was offered an assistantship that paid $15,000 a year for three years for 20 hours a week of work. This was a step up in wages and dignity from my prior employment managing a spa for $8.50 an hour. It also provided affordable, if not excellent, health care. When I decided to move to New York City, it was not for the poetry community, but for my one job offer, which was managing a tutoring company for $30,000 a year and excellent free health coverage. Money has been the determining factor in my life, and now I focus on getting money and recognition for other poets through my work with Belladonna and Bone Bouquet, and recently with Noemi Press as well. I'm building a bookkeeping business to serve small presses. Administrative work for poetry organizations reduces barriers between poets and seeing their work in print. Expertise in bookkeeping, accounting, budgeting, IRS compliance, however you see it manifest, is my new intervention. As for events, there are too many, and the purpose of an evening is seldom clear. Some hosts seem to do the hosting in order to be thanked. I've observed a similar trend in interviewing and best of lists lately, too. The one name that never fails to be mentioned is the list author. 
For me, I'm focused on events as celebration. I'm looking forward to the second ever Bone Bouquet issue launch next week at Burl's and to Tanya Foster and Major Jackson's double book launch party soon. A thoughtful celebration is foolproof. As an invited poet performer, I've asked questions about race and money in series and lineups. Asking questions has consequences. In one case, my invitation was revoked and I was told I could apply to participate another time. In another case, I saw an email not intended for my eyes in which a poets and writers editor said, part of me wants to be more diverse, but we had such a good time last year. I declined that invite and made an argument about this failure. I remain at present uncertain if my actions have had any positive impact, but I'm grateful for the conversations and rooms I'm welcomed into today, which are nourishing and deep. gets a little taller suddenly. Thank you. Um, hi, I'm Katie. Critique of Stephanie Young and Juliana Spar's program era in the mainly white room by Rachel Levitsky. The white room of the poetry reading for Stephanie Young and Juliana Spar, whether it is a poet's living room, a cafe, or a university reading room, is constructed by big structures of power seen in patterns of university admissions, funding, and shifting institutional reality. Because this megalith of institutional framing and funding is ultimately so controlling and damaging, Spar Young prefer a list of 1970s outside interventions like Amiri Baraka's 1965 Black Arts Repertory Theater slash School to June Jordan's 1991 Poetry for the People, an arts activism organization she founded at UC Berkeley. Young Spar view the fact of June Jordan choosing the university over the street as evidence that the landscape has changed since the 1970s to become so inscribed, so without and outside. When I read this piece, I perceive the poetry world of Spar Young as a total world controlled by others. This world and its controllers have invited some people of color into the MFA only to alienate them permanently from poetry and damn white poets to staying with white poets, no matter where they go, no matter how hard they try. Here's a quote that might support my sense of this, that this is the posture of the piece. Quote, it might be that the experience of the MS MFA for people who do not identify as white is so dispiriting that they walk away. It might be that their experience of the mainly white room is so dispiriting that they never go back. Talks with friends and students over the years have suggested as much. One told us incredulously that the gender dynamics she encountered at the few readings she attended were far worse than those in the hyper-masculinist punk music scene. Another said there's no part of his social life that isn't multiracial. Why would he want to be part of a writing scene that's so relentlessly white, end quote. I would like to propose a different posture despite the spreadsheets and curves of this lively article in the LA Review of Books. Like the friend of young Spar who refuses to go to a writing scene that is so relentlessly white, 
I question the production of any poetry at all in a scene that is relentlessly white. Sure, people need jobs, and people like us, me and Spar and Young, can also shape the world when we have jobs. Assuming that it's true that literary production is now completely shackled by structures of power, how do we as revolutionaries and communists create war against those structures, whether they be war of attrition within institutional, lay and academic structures, or direct attacks on the street? Here's a little personal example. When, after being an adjunct for 10 years, I got my full-time job at Pratt Institute, it was such an unlikely proposition that a scrappy, queer, non-academic like me who'd been adjuncting and who, never even got, who had never even gotten an interview after years applying to other jobs would get this, I decided that such a position was a place of power from which to maneuver. Christian Hockey and I had been collaborating at Pratt. He'd been asked to design an MFA and was building a politically engaged collaborative program. He wanted to collaborate with me. The first thing we said to each other was that it had to be radically diverse and fully funded. Since then, we always use our alliance to argue for these things, and often we win. I will list below some precepts for the work of diversity, and I will say one thing about the funding piece. It's a hard one to take on, but people like us with MFAs or who have whatever reason to be here tonight, <clears throat> should take on money. We need real estate and space, and if we don't take it, the racists will. For the rest of my few words, I want to talk about being a white person who produces culture and refuses to support production that reproduces what some students in the Pratt MFA in writing have called overwhelming whiteness. Here's some of what I do. Don't ever agree to make something that does not create demographic parity. Better yet, a people of color majority. Never support spaces in which a person of color is alone because being so means they are in a state of siege. People can only defend themselves when they have allies. If you aren't white, don't go to things that ha don't have program parity and racial intelligence. They don't need your support. They have all the white people they need already. And whatever they are selling is shaped by the acquiescence that made it. Listen to people of color, follow their leadership, even when your whole white body screams at you that you will die if you do. Assume that radical poets of color, radical working class and poor poets exist in their communities making and sharing their work, even if you can't see them. Find them and support them. Practice asking people you fear to do the right thing, fund the right thing, listen to the right people they aren't used to listening to. Do this publicly and privately. Make less and listen more. I can go on, but I am way over my 500 words. Love to all. Okay, thanks for listening. Um, so, Dr. Cheryl Clark, Christopher Stackhouse, Mahogany Brown, Ariel Goldberg. So, you guys come on up. And in the meantime, while we sort of get ourselves reorganized, I'll make some remarks. Um, so I, I asked you all to be here today because I, I read Juliana Spar and Stephanie Young's piece in the LA Review of Books, and I really, you know, I don't, people who do work, I'm like, great, your work is great, thank you for doing it. And I, I really am grateful that they did the work that they did. I'm fascinated by the mode in which they operated, and that's why I, 
convened this little group this evening. Um, it seems to me that, I mean, I'm what's called the program director here at the Poetry Project, and one of the things I have responsibility for is the Wednesday night series, which is like a giant cruise ship, right, that like um, just like floats along on the ocean um, of US poetry, kind of by itself, frankly, if you allow it to. And one of the things that the project is really struggling with as an organization is, you know, what are the interventions and sort of interactions and um, programmatic responsibilities that we have in order to turn that ship around um, to make it move with the currents of the actual world that we live in. And that's a challenge for a number of important reasons. And, one, and some of them are real and important reasons like um, we respect elder poets, even if they're like old white dudes, right? And some people, you know, like we want to continue in some ways to support the work of um, writers that have made the Poetry Project possible. At the same time, um, we, at the same time, this is my job and I get to do kind of like what I want to do. So what I want to do is think about the ways in which the struggle in the last couple of years in poetry has been in some ways like trying to find terms in which to have a conversation about how to make change. And it seems to me like the swing between anecdote and, um, you know, this happened to me um, and um, something beyond anecdote, which is actually more like confession and, um, and the request to be acknowledged as a human being who's had experiences that people just don't want to hear about. And, um, and the spreadsheet, like these are tremendously far apart. And it seems to me that Juliana and Stephanie in this piece kind of move to the structural in an effort to kind of um, move us to a different place in the dialogue um, to give us, you know, um, to like move us into the room with the big boys, kind of. And it seems to me that like, maybe I don't wanna be in that room. I don't necessarily wanna be in the room where I am dealing as a poet, as a writer, um, strictly at the level of, of um, structural analysis. I just refuse to do it. I think there are gonna have to be terms for us whereby we offer people something like aesthetic critical tools with which to think about how not to be racists and how not to be sexists and how not to be dangerous. And I think, you know, what we're here to do is to try and sort of think about the ways in which this piece helps us and the ways in which this piece kind of maybe, you know, sets terms that, you know, maybe we don't want. And it's that's up to you, you know, like read it. It's really, it, it's amazing. And I think we should all read it. It's available for free online at the LA Review of Books. Um, <clears throat> but those are my goals. Um, and everybody on the panel will have different goals. Um, so I have asked them to introduce themselves briefly um, in whatever way they deem appropriate. And um, we can begin. I'm Mahogany, good evening. 
Good evening. It's not YouTube, it's real life. We can actually hear each other, so let's do that. Um, I am a poet. I am a second year at Pratt Institute's uh, MFA in writing and activism, in which we renamed. Um, I am also a curator, the curator at the New Yorican Poets Cafe, and I'm a mom. My name is Ariel Goldberg. I'm the Friday night coordinator here at the Poetry Project, and I'm also a teacher um, and a poet, and I'm, I'm really honored to be up here and be talking with all of you in this room today. Uh, my name is Cheryl Clark. I've been a poet for a long time, I guess. <laughs> I guess I'm probably the oldest person in this room, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> so I'm happy to be here. Oh, so many people. Uh, hi, I'm Chris uh, Stackhouse, and um, I've been around for a little bit, and uh, <laughs> I'm just interested in listening and talking. I was going to write something, and um, I'm like in conversation with a bunch of poets, uh, mostly black poets. Um, speaking of like the kind of white room and race and segregation, uh, Tisa, who was going to be here, I didn't know she was going to be here, and then I found out she was going to be here, and then she's not going to be here. But um, Tisa, John Keane, uh, Taya Majess, uh, Jeffrey Jocks, Randall Horton. Um, there's a there's a big you know small well big small group of us that email each other a bunch and so I've written so much about um, VP and KG and MP um, that I'm tired of writing about them and tired of really thinking about them although I, I do have to say um, I think that the position where some of these um, poets are coming from, or writers, or uh, cultural producers. I mean, I think Kenny Goldsmith is a cultural producer of sorts. Uh, it's a bad taste kind of culture, but um, you know, I think that they need to be discussed. Um, you know, and I think their ideas need to be, uh, you know, eviscerated. Um, and relentlessly so. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that, how that you know, manifests or turns into um, something productive other than um, taking us back and, and looking, through, looking at things in a very um, a kind of extra formal way. Um, I mean, I think that's the big difficulty. It's like, you know, um, you know, it's, it's complicated. I, you know, I, I'm a black male, heterosexual male, um, resolutely heterosexual black male. Um, and I'm always in spaces where I'm uh, somewhat singular, 
queer spaces, spaces with white people, spaces with black people that don't really want to be around white people, um, spaces with uh, white people who are contentious. I've had every manner of experience, uh, negative experience in the poetry scene. Um, I mean, I could name them. Um, I, I mean, they're just endless. Um, but I, you know, it's weird. My, my, my real complaints are less about uh, those things than they are about um, expressions of power where they, they matter. I think that has to do with economics and everything that's tied to economics. And, and, you know, when people think about economics, they think about just money. And it's not just money. I mean, there's, um, there's cultural capital, there's social capital, um, there's just access to information, um, there's the ears. Um, I mean, I think that's a, a big thing. One of the things that I've noticed over the last 25 years um, that has changed some, um, but is still prevalent, is uh, an inability for, you know, I would say, you know, white people. I mean, it's like, you know, I, even that's complicated to say. You know, think about someone like, you know, Joe Travolo. Was he white? Um, no, he's Italian. Uh, you know, I mean, the identification with whiteness is is a problem for the so-called white folks that call themselves white. It's like, you know, I mean, I, some of us have grandparents that speak Greek and speak French and speak German and Polish and, you know, and Czech and Turkish and like, you know, but then when they come around each other, around black people, they become white people and it's like, that's weird, you know. So it's it's complicated for me to talk about it in that way. We'll just say like um, to understand it's qualified. Whenever I say white people, I mean people that are choosing to identify with white Anglo-Saxon uh, kind of paternalistic power. Um, uh, I'm babbling, but it, I'll just say you know um, listening to other people is the real thing, and listening with an interest that uh, that goes, you know, that, that um, you know, th there's disinterest because you don't understand something. Like, you don't like the way that someone sounds, you don't like the way that they form language, you don't like the way that they aesthetically present, and therefore you kind of turn off. And I think the, one of the major issues for black and non-white, non you know, or PLC people, is that the option isn't there to really turn off and say, I don't like the way that this group of people looks, I don't like the way that they sound, I don't like their aesthetics, I can actually eliminate them from my worldview and from my, um, from my you know, general purview. And the antithesis of that is that, you know, um, people who don't identify or are not POC, especially not black people, um, have the option of just not looking and not listening and, um, and insisting that, uh, you know, without, without uh, you know, you, you can look at black people and say that they're inferior, 
I mean, that's really what it comes down to is that you are choosing to ignore, folks choose to ignore literature in this case, but we can talk about a range of other contexts, um, choose to ignore it or sidestep it based on an inherent belief, an inherent thing that says to themselves that they've learned it, we've been taught it, that black life, black people, non-white um, people, non-English speaking people for that matter, are, you know, inferior to some degree. I mean, we have exceptions of French and, you know, uh, Italian, whatever, but in, in this context that we're talking about here, I think, you know, that, that's the big deal. And the real correction has to come from there. You know, like when you hear someone read or present or, or offer themselves, um, are you looking at them as an equal? Um, and are you willing to uh, be ignorant in front of, uh, you know, individuals or cultural production that you don't immediately understand? And to do so when it offers you no immediate pleasure. Um, and I, I say that in regards to like music. I mean, white folks can listen to black music all day long in a white, in a so-called white room, because it brings a certain amount of pleasure, a certain amount of ecstasy, or whatever. But when it doesn't bring you pleasure, um, when you have to actually think about it, you have to actually put yourself in the subject position of a black person. I put myself in the subject position of you know, racist poets all the time, T.S. Eliot, you know, Wallace Stevens. You know, I've sat and looked at their work and digested it from a, from a subject position, subjective position, and said that, you know, here, I'm, I'm looking at the world through their eyes. Did it with Faulkner, you know? I mean, the list goes on and on. So the question is, can you do that? Can, can white folks, in quotes, do that? And not just with our great historical figures, Morrison and Baldwin or any of those people, but like with your peers. And then I'm gonna stop there. Am I to go next? Well, I kinda don't know where to begin. Um, but I think I'll just read my uh, November 6th response to Simone. Can you all hear me? Yes. Uh, probably best if I don't hear myself. <laughs> Losing it. Uh, which I didn't remember I had written. I was reading it and I said, oh God, this sounds really good. <laughs> uh, I'll just read this and just uh, say like several of uh, the people in the Google Docs that you posted, the other, you're one of them, the other two writers um, talked about the development of alternative venues. Uh, and I kind of hesitate to use the word alternative because it sounds like alternate route, you know, uh, instead of the main route, but alternative venues or 
venues outside of the institutional places. Um, we sometimes inhabit. Um, and I was uh, a part of uh, the lesbian feminist movement from the early 80s, well, until now, really, even though lesbians are dinosaurs now. That's okay. Um, but I'll just read, read what I wrote Simone on November 6th. Y'all are laughing. <laughs> Thanks for sending me the link to this article, Spar and Young, uh, which drove me crazy, <laughs> took my whole afternoon, in which I was supposed to be editing a friend's poetry manuscript and talking to another poet friend about some publishing issues, neither of them in MFA programs, but both of them have MFAs. <laughs> too many arguments, and I am too old. The thought of having to reread re it makes me want to blindfold myself for a year. What will we be talking about in January? And you are starting so late in the evening. <laughs> 8 p.m. Will there be enough time when there is never enough time? Will there be wine? You said you were going to have some. I'm getting it. <laughs> But because Anna Moskovakis of uh, Ugly Duckling recommended me, I feel obligated. Racist, <laughs> racist remarks in white rooms, sexist remarks in mixed gender white rooms, MFA programs, but I am an autodidact of sorts writer. And uh, the white rooms, okay. The references to the white rooms almost make me think I am in a 12-step meeting, and I have been in them. FBI and Ford Foundation destruction of insurgent literatures. Not really, some of us did not die, as June says. Well, of course, sexist higher education didn't discourage women from attending. Neither, neither, neither did racist in institutions dissuade people of color once we started going to them in the late 60s. And by the way, there is no mention in the article of how feminism enabled women uh, to have and still have a vibrant literary movement. Not a word about women in the, the women in print movement, not a word about gay and lesbian literature, not a word about independent women's presses, publication stores. I guess this is where I come in, I guess. So what do I do now? Okay, that was um, 
So, I guess I'll, I'll stop with that question, what do we do now? Um, I'll just go on to um, Ariel. That's your name, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, the piece that I wrote, I think, is a little bit too long to read. But I, I did examine a, a chapbook called Arlem uh, that Renee Gladman wrote in the mid-90s, it was published by Idiom, and I, I read it about a, a lot of times before um, thinking about what I wanted to say tonight, and this is just a quote from it. You once said there was a difference between what something does and what it originated to be, and we would see it once the thing became public, which means the presence of what I cannot define determines what I hear so that you read Doubting Me. And that was Renee Gladman from Arlen. I understand queer, trans, lesbian spaces as limited. Queer spaces can be fraught with many of the same problems around race and gender and class privilege as supposedly white spaces and straight spaces. Meanwhile, my life and work depends on official and unofficial spaces loosely named as queer. There's a lot at stake in what spaces one enters and who one spends their time with. The naming of this ever mythical, fictional sense of a queer community at times foregrounds one identity over another, such as race, religion, geography, class, ability, the list goes on. I find identity-based labels at times imperative, but also effective when paired with the duty to make prominent the complexity and specificity of both individual and collective experiences. Perhaps based on my participating in what can at times be called queer artistic spaces, I deeply respect black separatist spaces, people of color separatist spaces, and queer POC spaces that are not exactly specified as separatist. I understand the construction of spaces based on race as connected to centuries of struggle and resistance within a country where anti-black violence and systemic racism penetrates our daily lives, yet affects people in extremely different ways. Um, I reflected also in my piece for this panel on an event that I went to this July called Misadventures in Black Dyke Dating in the 90s uh, that was organized by Vivian Crockett uh, as part of the Dirty Looks uh, queer film festival that happens um, every other July. And I was very excited to see films and videos by Charles Dunyay, Jocelyn Taylor, Don Suggs, and Shari Frilo. Um, the event was in Harlem at the Maisel's Documentary Center. I arrived early and sat down in the very small theater with AC. The theater was filling up. I was about to move to the basement where Maisel's had set up a simulcast to accommodate the overcapacity crowd when Vivian got up to make an announcement that a lot of black queer women would like to sit in the theater and if you identify as otherwise, please consider trading seats. My white friend Karen and I became a part of two lines of people trading seats roughly divided along race and gender identification. We were moving and talking about our bodies in the space. The theater in the basement shifted to prioritize the audience matching the filmmakers and their subjects. Vivian commented, reparative work is being done. 
Sociality complicated the seat rearrangements, of course. A black person stood up and shouted, can I come up to the theater if I bring my white friend? A friend who was Colombian arrived just after the seat moving joked, where do I go? Complicating the language of race when using white and black identifiers. She ended up staying in the upstairs theater as a caretaker to her white friend who was injured and couldn't use the stairs. There was also a row in the theater reserved for scent-free people. In the hour-long post-screening discussion, Vivian spoke about how black culture is often popular and sexy, which leads to black culture being eagerly consumed and appropriated by white audiences. Someone spoke about the trauma of even seeing white people at an event showcasing black filmmakers' work, especially given the context of the recent massacre at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. Another person expressed concern about this redistribution of the audience producing a voyeuristic white space watching black cultural production. Another person spoke of how some of the films featured Latina and white characters in relationships with black women. Several trans and gender nonconforming people challenged the use of the word dyke and the gender binary that dyke implied, which was apropos to the early 90s, but arguably dated in 2015. I research, write about, and gain inspiration from film and photography made by dykes. I like the word, I use it. But as a white person, I and many others, I think, wondered if they should have stayed home for misadventures in black dyke dating in the 90s. How does the naming of events uh, with identities in their title demand an exa examination of audience and of yourself? How does the question of audience always change depending on who is asking? How can white viewers, readers, audience members respectfully engage, talk about, write about, and grow from art made from people of color without resembling and enacting the traumatic violence of colonizers? I wonder if the naming of a mainly white room by Juliana Spar and Stephanie Young as white cis women reinstates as opposed to challenges a supposed dominant culture of whiteness. I am more interested in thinking about spaces that are not reflected in Spar and Young's article. I work to remove the notion of whiteness as center or norm in my curatorial work and in my life. M. Lamar said in an interview with Risa Puleo, the only way you can create different kinds of possibilities within this current political and cultural context is to imagine them. The question is how we imagine. And I'll just leave it at that. So I'm gonna do a little of both. I'm gonna read some of what I wrote. And funny enough, um, I wrote a poem uh, but before I get into what I wrote, uh, I'm, I, I recognize that I'm really lucky. Um, I'm a part of the MFA program at Pratt, which is uh, six people of color, uh, two gender nonconforming, two males, and uh, five, five women identified writers, correct? Soretta, is that right? I don't know, but we're good. <gasps> you are a magician. You made that happen, that's brilliant. Um, so, I say that to say when I speak of my cohort, I'm always able to talk about a world in which most MFA programs have no idea. They're like, oh, all of those, like, all of those women are in it, or oh, you have gender non-conforming discussions, or um, they're just really surprised. And so when we talk about poetry, um, we're also trying to look at it from that lens, even if it is not successful. 
um, in speaking about breaking up white spaces. I started at the New Eureka Poets Cafe in 2001. I became the poetry program director about 2007. And um, I remember going to AWP for the first time, which was very scary. It was like a lot of Bukowski, like failed Bukowskis. <laughs> and they were so mean and just, it was all about sex and like being really like vicious to like people who didn't have a degree or weren't with a certain uh, imprint. And I was just interested in bringing new voices to the New Eurekan. And one of the responses at the bar was, oh, I don't go there. It's, it's a lot of people of color, huh? And I was like, you just said that with your mouth. But the, the, the reality is people really thought that like only people of color can go there, only black people can go there. Um, and it was after Kabe Kanem that certain spaces where those AWP persons were started looking at me as a real writer. Um, and said, oh, since you've done that, maybe you wanna come and see this space. And it was after my Poets House Fellowship as an emerging writer that I was introduced to like the other backdoor <laughs> events that were like 20 years long run. I'd never heard of it before. So um, I say that to say, holy, holy shit, Batman. I didn't know it was like that until I got a little bit closer um, to these spaces. And then I, I wasn't certain that I wanted to break into it in that way. So when you talk about alternative spaces, I say yes, like word, alternative as in usurp, <laughs> as in um, eat it and poop it out and we'll be better, right? Um, I work with kids, so I, I use really weird analogies, sorry. Um, I will read what I wrote though. My first year in an MFA program was discombobulating. I joined the inaugural cohort of Pratt's MFA as a full-time artist and educational consultant, which means I spent my days as a black woman writer as an arts curator in New York City, as a traveling publisher and poet, and as a mother. I also know what my face and body and breath means to a room that I walk in. If I walk in with my shoulders a certain way, I can suck the air out of the room. If my forehead burrows, I can inflate the heat in the space. And when I see mainly white spaces, I already know I am feared and should be afraid. Upon walking into the weekly critique session on campus, I thought humility, I thought speak softly, I thought be friendly. I'm not sure these are attributes we ask of our male counterparts. I'm not certain this is a requirement for a white woman writer. I only know how I am perceived. Specifically because I'm told more times than not I look scary or I was afraid of you. And I never shudder, I never shake away the doubt. I say only, of course. Um, and I'm gonna jump down a little bit. During the circular discussion of getting nowhere quickly, this is when we were trying to determine the name for a literary magazine for our class. Um, I offered an opinion and was offered a deafening silence before the class returned to its usual buzz. No one even acknowledged me. No one responded to my statement. And just like that, I returned to the refuge of my home and asked my partner if I was crazy. Like most people of color, when racism happens, you filter through the events three different ways. What did I do? What could I do differently? Did they mean to offend me? All of these questions inform the offended, offended person's response. And just like that, I accepted the blame and not being heard. Fast forward. Um, when I walked away, 
I realized I needed to create a collective on the campus that saw me and people like me. The Women Writers of Color Student Organization was created. With this organization, literary artists, poets, activists, and thinkers were invited to change the makeup of the campus by facilitating dialogue about racism, sexism, homophobia, and classism. With the inception of WWOC, the discussions were met with urgency, and after a successful year, we erected a non-lending library reading room. Um, my only hope is to continue providing space for people of color in white spaces, both on stage and off. I'm aware of how my blackness and otherness is deemed too heavy to continuously toil. Uh, and because of that, I wrote a, I'll just share a small part of the poem. When you are a black woman writer in America, it gets harder to watch them watch you, watch them wait for you to seize the safe white and almost white spaces pages watch. Watch them watch you, watch them call you black woman, so black call you shiftless. Watch them call you unprofessional, call you not a real artist, no YouTube street and unprofessional. Watch them call it all synonymous. Okay, so thank you all. Um, I'm here to help, but not to um, orchestrate this conversation. Um, one of the things that I wanna say is that I'm hoping to help us to think about audience, right? Um, so the idea is that, you know, it's, it's really important to talk about racism and it's really important to talk about the experience of being like a differentiated body in the world. Um, but I hope that what we can sort of think about right now is how it is that every time we have an event like this, we still end up with a 90% white audience, right? So how does that happen? And what Juliana Spar and Stephanie Young are asking us to do is sort of like, go with them down the road of a structural analysis of an MFA program so that at the end of the analysis you're like, okay, well, what's happening is, you know, the production of literature has resulted in um, segregation of folks because you have to get an MFA in order to succeed in this kind of like particular historical economic moment, right? And I think like some of the things that were just said sort of indicate some of the questions that we might raise, right? Like Christopher, and I've talked to Christopher about this many times, these people are all, in addition to being writers, curators. Um, they all have worked at the problem of organizing and um, cultivating and sometimes tweaking audience. And, um, I hear people, I talk to people all the time about this, and one of the things that I've heard Christopher say, I hope he doesn't mind my saying this, you sort of said it just now so I don't feel bad, is sometimes people just don't wanna be around a lot of white people. Um, that is not exactly a structural problem, is it? That's a different kind of problem of um, responsiveness and affect and love and um, a social problem that we need to be able to figure out ways to talk about as writers. Um, what Mahogany just said also about introducing herself as a mom, I thought was, I was like, oh shit, I'm a mom, right? <laughs> like, I never talk about being a mom, right? And I think one of the reasons you don't talk about being a mom, right, is like, because the fact is, I turned up at the Poetry Project seven weeks after I had my baby and came to work. 
and continue to work without a break. So, you know, those kinds of requirements of us, um, and I was also finishing a PhD and whatever. <laughs> so, um, you know, how do you talk about the things in your life that make it impossible for you, for example, to come to the Poetry Project on a Wednesday night? Um, how does Ariel do, I'm, st I'm still mystified by what Ariel does on Friday nights. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how she does it, right? And I feel like one of the things that we need to kind of like be always thinking about is like, we need to be running up to Ariel saying, how are you accomplishing what you're doing on a regular basis? Um, I remember talking to Christopher a couple, maybe a year ago, and I was like, we were talking about this, and he was like, I have never had an all-weight event, ever. And I was like, oh, how's that work? And he told me, just because I asked, right? And the other thing I want to say before I just like turn it over to you guys and try to have a conversation is the most important conversation that I'm having creatively in my life right now is not with a poet, a black man, um, who has nothing to do with poetry, not really. And um, it is the most stimulating and exciting conversation that I've had about art in ages. And that's partly because it is so driven by a kind of baseline understanding that our conversation is fundamentally about race, that um, I mean, the conversation is about trap music, primarily. <laughs> so, which is like really interesting, right? And, um, but it has transformed my ideas about the future of my writing practice, probably forever. And if I can't have those kinds of conversations, then there is no long-term future for me in um, any kind of avant-garde writing community. So, you know, the question is how, you know, who do you want to stay? You know, who do you want to continue to kind of be in dialogue about, about the kind of work that you do? And like, what do we, what do you have to say? Please feel free to come to the mic or raise your hand or pass up a note card. We have no cards for you guys if you want them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Any questions? Comments? We can talk about trap queen lyrics. <laughs> we can talk about trap queen <laughs> This is a this is better. 
Um, I mean, we could probably count on two hands the number of people in here who don't identify as white, and four of those people maybe are sitting in the front of the room. Um, Ariel, do you identify as white? I'm white. She's white, okay. Jewish. <laughs> okay, they white. So, um, <laughs> but this is, this is actually like pretty good. I mean, and partly, you know, but this is a conversation that's actually, you know, content-wise um, designed to ask people of color, which is a term I don't use very frequently actually, um, to come here and talk to us about what it's like to be here in part. Um, you know, I just, the question about identification, I just can't answer that. But specifically Cave Canem, I knew they I know they do a crossing cultures workshop where they open it open it to the community and they have a reading every eight weeks thereafter. Um, also Page Meets Stage. Uh, it happens at Cal over on Clinton and Houston, and that's a monthly series um, where we actually um, try to um, dismantle the idea that there's only one type of poet. This is a person who's only writing poems for the page. This is only a person who's doing slam. And what ends up happening is you have like Tyamba Jess and Saul Williams are doing a reading together. Um, exactly. Um, I did a reading with Chris Abani. Um, Nicole Seeley and Megan Fowley will be doing a reading next week. And just, you, you're, mix, you're mixing up the genres and the voices and, and even it, the generations. So I spend my time doing one of two things, like in terms of, like the only poetry readings I really go to or readings that I go to are often in this room. Um, and I'm very devoted to the poetry project. And, um, and I find that the other events that I go to are not poetry events, like the event that Vivian Crockett organized for Dirty Looks was amazing and that's why I wanted to focus on it. Um, and I also, I think, I try to spend time not on the internet talking about um, everything that we're talking about tonight. I try to talk to friends about it and make time for friendship in my life and creative communities that are not in institutional spaces. Um, so that's like a micro um, answer, but I also spend a lot of time um, I'm like a Renee Gladman, Pamela Lou, Tisa Bryant, like nerd, like I research and, and think a lot about their writing and a lot of their writing that I recently just spent a lot of time reading um, and writing about in a book that I'm working on called The Estrangement Principle is about um, spaces that they made, um, POC spaces, lesbian POC spaces that they made and how they supported each other. Um, and that's how it transmits in the writing to me. 
um, in this zine called Clamor that Renee Gladman uh, made from 1996 to 1999. Um, so I like to think also about how these conversations are not just happening tonight, they've been happening for many, many decades. Um, and I feel very nourished by reading um, other people's writing about it also. I also just remember because you brought up some people on Belladonna. They have a great series. It happens every once in a while. Like I'd say every quarter at least it's happening, right? And No Dear, um, Alex, where are you? Alex has a great, a great collection of different voices and they have a, a, they have a, a reading series. I think it's every quarter-ish, about. And Winter Tangerine also does readings um, at the New Yorican and Poets House. I really don't feel I have anything to add uh, to what Ariel and Mahogany have said. Um, Can I ask a question? Uh, pardon me? Can I ask a question? Sure. Okay. Um, when Anna told me about the work that you're doing upstate, uh -huh. I was really interested to hear about that. And I'm hoping that you'll share that tonight a little bit. Well, I'll share it. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share that. Um, and I'm happy to say that, you know, I spent many years in my job at Rutgers and in alternative spaces organizing programs, literary programs, writing programs, and promoting the writing of women and lesbians and women of color and black women. Um, Uh, every year for the past almost four years, my sister, my partner, and I organize a women writers festival in this town in the Catskills in the middle of fucking nowhere <laughs> and talk about some white rooms. Um, but uh, we are committed to having a diverse upstate, down, when they say downstate, you know, they mean here, uh, upstate, downstate mix of write, women writers come to this book village in the Catskills called Hobart. Nothing to do with Hobart William Smith. And in fact, they call it Hobart, but you know, Hobart. And so we do, we've been doing this, we're going into our fourth year. And um, most of the people who come are older, white women my age and older, if you can imagine. 
the women writers who are invited, as I said, are a very diverse group. Um, and you can go to our website and, you know, see the caliber of writers we've had come in. Uh, but uh, the festival, the activity does so much for this village, which is so very poor, in the poorest county in New York State. Uh, Delaware. Delaware County. Um, so, uh, we're very happy to do this festival and each year the audience gets, has gotten more diverse and hopefully it will someday match the diversity of the writers. Uh, I mean, I know this isn't exciting to y'all, uh, but uh, the, hopefully it'll, you know, so this is, you know, one of the things I'm involved in now. But that question of audience is such a complicated issue. How you get that audience, you know, and, you know, okay, we can say, all right, maybe. There's, this is a mainly white room. I don't know, I'm, I'll just say this from appearance. But um, it's more than, I mean, this is what I was gonna ask, and don't let me get too drunk. Did your whiteness bring you here? Or were there some other politics involved in coming into this space tonight? Um, so I'll stop now. So, Please come to our festival, <laughs> September 9th, 10th, and 11th this year. It's always the weekend after Labor Day. The Hobart Festival of Women Writers. But anyway, I'll just stop there. I really like the question questions, the bullet points that Rachel Levetsky offered. Um, I wish I could pass those out to people. Uh, that's all I wanted to say. Actually, I don't have a question or anything extra. Um, I think it's, I think I prefer people, um, non-people of color, to consider their place of privilege before me having to like point it out. Like you said, you don't want to go into a space, um, or Chris, you said it, not everybody want to be around white people, which it, what I heard was not everyone wants to like continuously break down the microaggressions and like tend to others, um, or maybe that was just how I feel about it. But reading this, it, it had a moment of like, why didn't they teach, teach this in gym class? This is amazing. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> like it's really easy if you just you know a little bit of home training. Um, and we could all get along and have like fun together or something. I mean, can we have fun together? I, I don't mean to. I, I, I feel like one of the, one of the questions, I'm going to keep pushing this, is, is 
that maybe it's not that fun to be together. And um, you know, this, these questions are like partly like aesthetic questions and partly political questions. So like I really, I was really interested in what you said about um, like the page stage stuff, and but also um, what you said about like sometimes you don't want to hear right the work of somebody who is not white. You know, in part because it requires you to sort of make some instantaneous cultural adjustments as you're listening and kind of like wonder. Um, am I not enjoying this because I'm a racist? Or, you know, like whatever it is, I don't know what goes through folks' minds. But sometimes, you know, like I, I, I know that I am pretty well trained up in the practices of like experimental literary stuff. And, but that didn't, I mean, I, it didn't happen like, I wouldn't just wake up one day and be like this. It required some um, work and it took many, many years of learning to kind of understand that language. And I think, um, and, some, and some grave discomfort, right? So I feel like one of the things that we have to f figure out how to talk about is our aesthetic discomfort. But also, it's not just, like there's a very, Aaron Kunin's very interesting piece about whether or not Vanessa Place's work was just bad. Um, you know, people were like, oh, why do you write that stupid thing? It wasn't stupid, as far as I was concerned. It was actually kind of brilliant in that it asked the question, um, you know, it, it said, I don't really know how to say, I don't like this, right? Like, I don't like this. I think that, you know, this person might be stupid, right? And I don't know how to express my discomfort with their intellectual predilections, their um, desires, their, um, you know, their tendencies or whatever. And I feel like this is actually one of the biggest problems of audience that we face as, as people who operate in an experimental writing community, right? That people don't know, they don't know what they, they don't know how to say, this is not what I want. Right, and they don't know how to express the nature of their own desires because they are so racist on some level. Right. Uh, I, I, want to, I want to jump in there. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of judging taste and judging, you know, judging aesthetics, judging the formal, you know, critiquing the formal qualities of a work, I think that there's on some level a lack of of vocabulary, um, a lack of language around how to discuss work in general. I mean, you know, oftentimes when we hear something we like, we we don't we, we don't we can't bring to bring terms to uh, to define the qualities of the work that we like, and we can't bring terms to define the qualities of things that we don't like. And I think it becomes far more difficult when you are outside of a community. Uh, to which a writer is writing, um, and you know, so I think that's 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 the uh, in, in, you know in in a non-racial in a non-social thing, maybe it is social education is I guess social and, and you know, but sometimes you look at work and you're like, well, what is this? Like you know, like what what what? Why should I why should I pay attention to to this particular thing? And um, you know, I think if we break break it down to to race, and I say black and white, and I think I think it's 
you know, obviously in the new world for the last at least 600 years, 500, 600 years and before, white and blackness has been, you know, qualifying terms that have been very slippery um, on, many, on many levels. Um, I keep thinking about, this is a non sequitur, a friend of mine, uh, Richie Lazansky, um, his wife was the PhD program at CUNY, and she had a fellow student who was from Africa. Um, I think he was Nigerian. And he was getting his PhD, and they got into an argument at one point. And he said this quote that I'll never forget. He yelled at her at one point and said, my mind is whiter than your mind. <laughs> and you're like, when I heard that, I kind of laughed my ass off. But then I also just thought about, like, that's it in a nutshell, right? Your training, how you think, how close can you get to the dominant class in terms of your education, in terms of your worldview, in terms of your choice, your aesthetic choices. You know, when you talk about the difference between whiteness and blackness, that's what really what is at issue. It's when, you know, when immigrants come to the United States and they keep coming, I'm not talking about people south of Texas because those are native people, but when they come from Europe, they come from Africa, they come from Asia, they all want to identify with whiteness. They want to get as close to what identifies them as that. And it's far away from what identifies them as black, black Americans. That's where the real division is. That's what it means. That's, what, that's why the conversation comes down to black and white. We know there's tons of shades in between and different ways of being. But that's what it really comes down to. Do I want to be identified as the descendant of chattel slaves? Do I want to be descendants of chattel imported from Africa? I don't want to be identified with that. What can I do to give, what, can I, what kind of markers can I carry that distinguishes me from that group? That's, that's what we're, we're getting down to on a very social, on a social level. And I think there are various kinds of indices in, uh, in our work, in our artwork that lead an audience member, a reader or a viewer towards a certain perception of our education, our background and our pedigree. And that's where the division comes in, you know. Um, the, the whole notion of the street poet or the spoken word poet versus the page poet. Well, that's a conversation about the autodidact or the self-taught versus the well-trained man or woman who went to Princeton or went to Yale or went to Harvard or went to Iowa or wherever the fuck, you know. That, that's, that's what that, that, that is. You know, it's, um, you know, then you talk about structural stuff, you know, it's like I looked at the uh, folks that won the, the Genius Grant this year, and I don't even want to mention any names of, of the folks and how I feel about it, but I'll say this. You know, here you have someone who's in his 30s, white, perhaps Jewish, but white, winning an award for $600,000 as, as a genius, and then you have Russell Atkins, who's in, from, in Cleveland, a black man in his 80s who's written music, written plays, composed music, 
done, I mean, just done all manner of poetry, you name it, across the board in the arts, and he's going to die alone in an old folks' home with no reward, no relatives, nobody paying attention, you know. So, you know, not to say that someone doesn't deserve something or someone does deserve something, but when you really start to look at who gets rewarded for what and how, it is institutional. It, it is a situation where, you know, you give money to your cousin. I mean, that's the bottom. You give money to your, your, your nephew. You tell your nephew, he's a fucking genius. Oh, you tap him on the head, keep going, you know. We, we've already given you five jobs and you already make $100,000 a year. Here's another 600000 keep going. Meanwhile, there's other people out here that are doing more work, better work, more often, for longer, that aren't being paid attention to. Now, that's not purely racial. I'm sure there's people all over, you know, that are not being rewarded. But when you have such uh, flagrant disparity in the allocation of resources, that's where the shit gets ugly. That, you know, it, and at a certain level, no one wants to look at just numbers because poets are above and, you know, they're, you know, they're so lofty that, you know, statistics, you know, doesn't mean anything. It's all about, you know, the ethereal, the spiritual and whatever, which is a crock of shit, you know. And, I, you know, I mean, I could go on and on, but there's a, a friend of mine, a student, said to me once, a young painter, uh, Lainey Nemet is her name. Her dad is, uh, was the director of a program I was teaching in in Baltimore. He, she said to me one time, she's like, Chris, why are you, you know, wh what do you expect artists to do? Like, why do you get on artist case about paying attention to economics and to the social and et cetera, et cetera? Like, what's, I don't understand. And I said to her, and this is a paraphrasing, I said, what you have is when you have, when you have people that can't afford to sit and think, you, you're disenfranchising them from the conversation. You have to be able to afford to sit and write a poem. You have to be able to afford to, you know, watch, you know, 15 films during a day and, you know, and study, you know, those films. You have to be able to afford books. You have to be able to afford to go to the museum. And you have to be able to afford to to, uh, you know, to lay in the grass and do nothing but muse. And you can see in society that some people, a very small minority of people, are given more access to resources that allow them to create. That's what we're talking about, you know. And, you know, as, I mean, this, again, getting into statistics and getting into, you know, r real talk, you see as the government strips money from education and takes money from, you know, uh, allocations from, from the arts, uh, the arts are still booming, but in a really tiny little space. There's a whole bunch of people that would be playing that suddenly can't afford to, be, to play and in a nutshell have been purposefully excluded from the conversation. And that's, you know, again, Maybe it's not just a white and black thing, but it disproportionately affects uh, black people. Um.
for like 10 more minutes. Sarah Jane, please, I'm sorry. I really appreciate all that you've all offered today in the writing since this moment. I want to go back to the idea of the white room for a moment, and uh, which I myself have been really attentive to in the time that I've been in New York City, and it felt really struck by louder. Yes. And okay. And uh, I'm I myself uh, am fascinated by the the power in reading and the shame in reading. And the, the relationship between power and shame and reading in the person reading and in the audience. And how many people I listen to say that they hate going to readings, but they go to them all the time, which I'm fascinated <coughs> by. And I want to ask a really like fundamental, basic, maybe set of questions about the space of reading, which is how do we greet each other in the space of a reading? Um, what kind of access do we feel like we give to the group of people who come to see us? Um, how do we change maybe the terms of the relationship between the person reading and the group of people watching? Um, how do we change the relationship between uh, reception and response? Like, What kind of opportunities can we produce for response as part of reading? Um, we all know the Q&A goes super great. Not. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes. But only when someone is, is negotiating. But I just, I just am curious if people have ideas about, like, about really kind of maybe basic changes that we can make that will alter the kind of affective atmosphere of the room that will make a larger number of people feel welcome and feel like met. You know what I mean? Because like I know that I would love to shake the hand of every person that enters the room. You know what I mean? And like greet them, maybe a little bit church style. Going, I've never been to church. Just in general, like I would love to shake everyone's hand in the space you know? and like know the people in the room and like have a moment to like reckon with what I think I know and all of the shit that I really don't know about the people in the room, but I really don't know. I would say that um, two of the best reading series in New York. And, and not performance, but like reading series, and it's all about people knowing each other, is Ocean Wong. He has a brunch salon at his house where he can invite more than 15 people and two readers. And I thought, oh, that's too small. There's so many amazing people. I want to read for everybody. And then I went there, and my life was changed. And also Brunch and Word, which happens in Brooklyn, um, by Idrissa Simmons, who now lives in Cali, but it's coming back somehow. And she, she can put people, about 20 people in her house. She cooks all this organic food, and you have the likes of like Ross Gay and John Murillo reading poems, and then an open mic that follows. So it's something as small as just, and I won't, no, I, I won't say invite everybody into your house, because that's dangerous. <laughs> it is New York City. But it, it was a beautiful, um, acknowledgement at community and at holding each other accountable. So the people that she let in her home was someone that either the poet performing knew or the open micer who had been there two to three times before knew. So they, everyone came with 
a name. Um, and it started off small, it started off just 10 people, then it grew to 25. And from there, I, I can only imagine that you take it to a space like the Poetry Project and ask Simone for space or the New Yorican. You know what I mean? You can start very small and make sure it's a community that you want to thrive and then take it to the world. Yeah, I've been, always had amazing experiences at home readings and another, um, to answer Loma's question about what readings would you recommend, I don't, I don't know if Brooklyn Ladies Tech Space Salon is still happening, but if it, it's amazing and, and I think if it has stopped because the organizers are paused because that's a lot of labor to run something like that from you know a roving group of homes and, and different guest curators administratively for people who have full-time jobs, like you know, a, a new one can start and will start, and, and I'm excited for that. J.P. Morgan Salon. Women writers in bloom, right? Uh, I, I think I'm going to try and go, go directly to the question about greeting um, people at poetry readings uh, and readings and events. You know, I have no answer. I, I have suffered from anxiety in group spaces. I think a lot of artists and a lot of poets are a little nervous um, sometimes when they go to spaces did somebody read my work? Do I like this work? Who's here? Who have I slept with here? I was drunk at a party and threw up. Is everyone, does everyone remember that? You know, kind of thing. I mean, th those are, there are general anxieties. And I think, you know, I mean, I think that has to be factored into the race, class, gender, queerness, whatever thing too, is that people are nervous. They live lives, and artists tend to live lives a little differently than other people. And being in a room with a bunch of other nervous, anxious-ridden, anxiety-ridden artists is is hard. Um, and then you you add the race thing in it, you know. As a, a you know, I would tell you some. I went to. Do you guys know Garrett Caliburg at all? He uh, okay. Some of you don't know him. But, um, years ago, it's probably two thousand two or three. He had a party at his, he would have, he was having parties at his place on Williamsburg. And my girlfriend and the mother of my children now um, was there and she, you know, she was on one side of the room and I was on the other. And Garrett's apartment was like this kind of long railroad apartment. And I was standing in the hallway for those that remember what that apartment looked like. And this dude, I can't remember his name, but he used to hang out here in the poetry project. Kel comes around and she's like, she's like, oh, baby, you cool? And I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. And she's like, you drinking? You want to drink? I was like, yeah. You know? And she walks away. And this dude says to me, and he's a hillbilly looking white boy, he said, look at you. Got you a white woman. You got it made, don't you? Just like that. Now, that's in 2003. The same night, the same, very same night, we were riding the F train, getting off the Bergenstadt. We were house-sitting for Dan Zanes and Paula Grief. And we get off the train, and when we're on the train, we're on the F, we get on, just before we get off at Bergen, there's this kid, white dude, kind of puffy, doughy-looking white dude. He's like staring at me and Kel, and we're an interracial couple or whatever. So we all get off the train, and then we're walking down like DeGraw Street, off of, just off of court at, at this point, and he's right behind us. And then he kicks a garbage can, and as he kicks it, he says, fucking nigger dating our women. 
same night. Now this is you know, now I'm just letting you know this so that you could you can understand that it is complicated. It it is very very complicated. It's not easy. A lot of folks are like, oh, really? I would never thought that. That's just two of probably a dozen or so stories I could tell from 2000 to 2008. You know, you know. I mean, it's it. And and when I when I say that, you know, black, a lot of black people don't want to or are hesitant to spend time around white people is they don't want to run into that shit. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. It's not even like. You know, you go to school with them, you write with them, you converse with them, you communicate with them on the scene. They're, they're just, you know, they're cool people. Everyone's cool. But at the, at the end of the day, if I'm going to, you know, get drunk, get high, try to get laid, I want to do that in a space that's relatively safe where no one's going to fuck with me. And I, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is, you know, white haven. And so I, you know, I understand. I mean, when I first moved to New York City, there was a uh, alphabet soup, and uh, like it was a, uh, it was like a group of black poets that did like spoken word stuff and improv, um, and they you know giant step was a big thing back then. It was a long time ago, and I remember getting on the train with uh, this young poet who's who wasn't out then, but now has come out and uh, you know she dates women. She's probably married to a woman now, but we were on the train one day. And uh, we're, on, I think, on the four or five, and this was probably 1994 or 95. And my nickname is Che, and so she said to me, she's like, Che, can you, do you, do you, do you feel comfortable being on the train with white people? And I said, yeah. She's like, I don't. She's like, I don't trust them, you know. And she's born and raised in New York. And for me, that was like a shock, because I was like, I hadn't even seen a world I hadn't been in a world, a creative world, um, where it wasn't interracial. You know, like my, 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 and I'll stop here, I guess I should stop. But to give you an example, where I'm coming from is uh, my parents separated in the 70s and my dad went immediately to the theater. And one of the first productions I saw, he was working in the theater, was an all Irish cast of The Raisin in the Sun. And I was, I was six or seven years old when I saw that. And so, like, my whole worldview is that, you know. <laughs> and, 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 you know, my aunt, my aunt, uh, who's been with the same woman for now about 45 years, she came out in the newspaper. She actually wrote a column announcing her coming out in, was it probably 68, 69 or something like that. You know, so those are the people I, that I'm, I mean, just a small sliver of the people that I've come from. So it's... I'm, it is, you know, it, it is complicated. It's very complicated. And, I, and I'll say this too, and this is the last thing. I don't always feel very comfortable in all black poetry circles. Like, you know, I mean, I went through Kavi Khan. Kavi Khan was, was relatively uh, difficult for me on, on a certain level. And when I, when I was in New York for a long time, I thought I had to identify as a, you know, as a black spoken word poet. And that was, you know, they came a little bit after me, but Saul Williams and a bunch of other folks were out doing their thing, and Jessica and all those folks. And I like worked my way over into that group in order to try and fit in, to only to realize that I didn't fit in. You know. So I don't fit in there, I don't fit in here, you know, da da da. 
And there is something to be said about making room for individuals. And I'll stop there. For visitors. Yes. Um, I think we couldn't possibly go on all night. Um, but I just want to thank all of you for being here. Thanks, Chris. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.